everybody has challenges in their life. Um, and if they haven't, get ready because it's coming. And it's all about being prepared. And it comes back to who you are as a person and how you're going to deal with that as a person. And that's what, that's what happened to me. Welcome to the Find The Gap podcast, where we're going to focus on the health and well-being of the support personnel and practitioners within high-performance sport. This will act as a platform for practitioners to share their own insights and experiences that have helped them progress to where they are today, as well as be a safe environment in which they can touch upon moments of vulnerability and other emotional battles in which they've had to overcome in order to be successful. My name is Sam, and thanks for joining me on the Find The Gap podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Sustainable Sports. Sustainable Sports is an apparel company designed for every athlete. Every piece of apparel is produced and made from recycled plastic bottles, which at the end of the period of use can be returned to be remade into the new model. 80% of discarded textiles can just sit there for more than 200 years, which emits methane, powerful greenhouse gas that is more potent than carbon. Sustainable Sports looks to be the apparel company that uses 100% recycled polyester fabric to help protect the planet. Their products are designed to look and feel great in order to boost the performance of those wearing them. Sustainable Sports understands the difficulties in community level sports and the struggles that local clubs have to endure throughout the season to get the players on the park. Sustainable Sports is made up of the individuals who are passionate and involved within sports at the grassroots levels. So today I'm gonna talk to John Quinn. Now John, his career has spanned for more than 30 years and he's worked Australia's leading athletes and coaches across sports as diverse as track and field, swimming, AFL, rugby league, tennis, cricket, bobsled, and soccer. Um, John's few accomplishments, for example, is high performance coach of Essendon Football Club, uh, Greater Western Sydney being the first one there, building that up, um, working with several athletes from the uh, for the Tokyo Olympic Games, um, strength conditioning for the Indian Cricket League in 2009, and it's just, that's the small example of a big, big list for John. Um, in 2014, John was diagnosed with a rare autoimmune disease and we talk about how he battled through that. So this saw John return to the DWS Giants on his role through the Academy Director and has also established two separate exercise physiology clinics, one in Sydney and one in Melbourne. So John is highly regarded in the sport and fitness industry. So his involvement with some of Australia's most elite sports people along with his own inspiring health battle uh, has made his expertise highly sought after by some of the most uh, elite sporting businesses and teams alike. So I'm um, looking forward to having a chat with John and without any further ado, here is the episode. Um, all right, cool. So John, mate, thank you very much for jumping on the podcast. How are you doing this morning? No, my pleasure. It's nice to be able to uh, come and have a chat. Well, actually, as I'm talking to you, I'm in uh, quarantine after being in Tokyo for 10 days. And then I've been in quarantine up here now for, well, I've got four days left. So I've had 10 days in quarantine here in Brisbane. And uh, looking forward to those four days ticking over and uh, finally getting back into the real world, I think. I don't know what the world is that I've left behind, but back to Sydney. So uh, yeah, I'll be back soon. Oh, good to hear, man. But just briefly touch on that that time in quarantine for yourself. How how's it been? Oh, actually, look, I I sort of came prepared, I guess, in terms of I had plenty of work to do, and I'm fortunate in that the work that I 
do is a lot of consulting work or assessment work, I don't have to do it in person, so I can do it online. So I've got a number of patients, for example, in Melbourne, so I'm treating them here. In fact, after this uh, chat with you, I've got uh, a couple of sessions with patients in Melbourne, so I'll spend an hour talking with them. Once I'm finished with doing their um, online assessment, I'll then go and put it in writing and so on. So it doesn't take long for the day to tick over when you've got a few consults and what have you to, to talk to. So I'm pretty pretty lucky that way. And I must say, I uh, haven't slept like this for, for years. It's probably uh, five or six years since I've been sleeping like this. I'm getting uh, anywhere between eight and nine hours sleep, which uh, we all know is what we should be getting. But uh, uh, my body clock seems to work on a different uh, system to that. And uh, we might talk about that a bit later on. But uh, no, to be getting regular sleep like that, I'm feeling fantastic. So this this quarantine has actually been fantastic for me. I've, um, uh, I'm quite thankful for the opportunity, but whilst I'm thankful, I've had enough too. I'm ready to go. Yeah, I can imagine it's, this gets uh, enjoyable to a certain point and then you're done with it. Mm -hmm. But uh, just to get us started, mate, do you want to just give me a bit of a background check on yourself, uh, maybe a bit of education background, where you've come from, um, how you got to where you are today? Oh. Mm. Uh, well, education-wise, I actually grew up in a country town of Yass, which is not far from Canberra, and uh, all my background was playing rugby league until I got older and uh, basically stumbled into athletics. I was faster than the average person in town and uh, um, ended up setting up an athletics club with a, a, a new... It was actually the butcher that had moved to town, and uh, he was pretty keen, and we set up an athletics club there. When I left school, I had great... Um, intentions of going to university and probably doing something in the area of education. But I had an old mentor. I didn't realise at the time that she was a mentor. She was actually my music teacher and she was an 89-year-old Catholic nun. And uh, she asked me what I was going to do when I was about 17 years of age and uh, I told her that I thought I might be a teacher. And she said, well, that's a fantastic thing to do, but there's no point in going off to university to do that. Teachers have to learn about life first. So don't waste your time going to university. Go and learn about life. If you still feel like you want to be a teacher, then go to university and do that. Well, for a 17-year-old, that actually resonated, and I decided that I wouldn't go to university straight away. And a job came up in the local hospital. So I started in clerical admin in the local hospital in Yass. And uh, meanwhile, I'm running and setting up an athletics club, which now when I look back and I understand it, it was quite significant because it was quite a small town yet we had one of the biggest clubs in New South Wales, certainly one of the biggest clubs outside of Sydney, and that didn't go unnoticed. And uh, when I was about 20, I got headhunted to come to Sydney to work for Little Athletics. So I became an education development officer for Little Athletics, and I used to drive about 140,000 kilometres every year, travelling all over New South Wales, from Broken Hill to Bondi Beach and everything in between. And... Uh, I would be running coaching clinics, seminars, camps, talking to kids in schools. It was such a great experience for me. I was working with some of the most affluent schools through to uh, kids with special needs, uh, school of the air. It was just a fantastic time. But I realised doing that, that I'd need to get some sort of education. Towards um, about, I was probably four years in, I enrolled at the University of New South Wales and I did um, a, a sports science degree and it majored in coaching, which was what I was interested in, and exercise physiology. And to be really honest, I didn't know really what exercise physiology was, but it sounded pretty cool, so I, I did that. By the time I'd finished that degree, 
um, and I was still working at Little Athletics at the time, uh, I got tapped on the shoulder to go and work for the AIS. And they wanted a like a, an apprentice uh, sprints coach to come down there. Um, there was a very good coach there at the time called Norm Osborne, and he was coming to the end of his tenure. And uh, I think what the view was, let's get this young guy in and he can basically learn off Norm and we carried on. I couldn't go straight away because I still had a semester of university. So um, they said, that'll be all right. We'll hold your job for you. And uh, by the time that had come around, there had been some changes in government policy. And they decided at, in that inter intervening few months that they would decentralise the AIS, meaning that they were going to bolster appointments around the country. And I had a choice. I could either go to Hobart and be part of the Tasmanian Institute of Sport or I could go to Townsville and be part of the Queensland Academy of Sport. There was nothing had ever been done in Tasmania. I hadn't been there before, and uh, I just thought for some reason that sounded like a better option for me, which was a bit odd probably for a sprints coach. So I headed off to Hobart, and uh, that was a great experience down there. I was 26 years of age, thought I knew absolutely everything about everything, and uh, clearly didn't. And uh, Tasmania was a great uh, part of my education uh, and not only did I have to um, get everybody on the common footing within that state and get them to see a broader national vision I had to lift the whole standard across that state in terms of their sense of high performance coaching Tasmania is almost like three states in fact it's not like it it is you have mm -hmm. the north you have the north the the south and you have the northwest and They've all got their own capital cities and uh, my job was to move around in between those. Anyway, look, I did that for, for around six years. I was in Tasmania and absolutely loved it. And uh, one of the things I think about the Institute in Tasmania that it probably does better than most of the other institutes, and they're all doing a great job, don't get me wrong, but one of the beauties of the sport in Tasmania when I was there was that they focused on four key sports and it was track and field, rowing, cycling and hockey. If you were very good at basketball or you were very good at tennis, then you would have to filter into those other sports. And what would invariably happen is that you could get most from the guy that does track and field. So they'd come to me for, say, speed or strength or agility or explosive power, those things. They're not going to get that from those other sports. And, of course, they had the other backup of the – they had a, a physiology and sports science department and they had whatever, the psychology and all that within the institute program. But for those hands-on things, I always started working with lots of different sports and I got, became very skilled in working with other sports. And one of those was AFL. I told you at the start, I grew up in a country town of New South Wales. I'd never seen a game of AFL when I went to Tasmania. I had absolutely no interest in it whatsoever. And these young blokes would come to me saying, oh, we're going to, uh, we've got to get ready for the draft camp and we want to do this and we've got to get faster. So I was working with these kids, getting them ready for that. And... Uh, Oh, look, to cut the story short, I got tapped on the shoulder from Essendon Football Club because they'd seen what was happening with uh, the athletes in Tasmania in terms of speed and agility, and my name kept coming up. And uh, that's how I met Kevin Sheedy. So the first game of AFL that I ever saw, I kept thinking I'd get time to have a look at footage on, in those days on a videotape, but it was just so hectic moving to Melbourne at the end of 1998 and getting the family set up, finding a house and doing all of those things, I never even had time to scratch myself. And I found, uh, I found myself at the MCG for a game against Carlton in, in a practice game. 
I didn't know how many points they got for kicking a goal a behind. Isn't that something you put in your shorts? Um, the centre square, how can you have a centre square? You know, all these, there I was, a total ignoramus. And uh, um, it was fantastic. And uh, I love Essendon Football Club to this day. I was there for 10 years. And uh, Kevin Sheedy's great. Um, well, it's, it's one part, part of his own character. He knew that I had no understanding of the game of football, but he didn't get me there for that. He got me to make the footballers more athletic, more dynamic, and help with the recovery and strength systems. And that's what I did. I brought in an institute of sport mentality to Essendon Football Club. And, uh, well, by coincidence or whatever, within 18 months of that appointment, Essendon were, had the most successful year in the history of uh, AFL in terms of number of games won and uh, went on to win the premiership. And, you know, uh, in many respects in 99, we, we dipped out by a point to Carlton. I still see Carlton as my nemesis, but uh, dripped out by a point and uh, otherwise we would have had a grand final there. And then in 01, we were just battered and uh, rolled into a grand final against Brisbane. And uh, that was the start of their dynasty of three wins, uh, three premierships in a row. Um, yeah, but it was a, a great time. And I was at the Bombers for 10 years got out of there and then set up my own company in uh, Melbourne doing consulting to different sports and actually by now working as an exercise physiologist in a clinical setting. And uh, that was at Olympic Park sports meeting those days. And that was all good experience. And I'd made a number of contacts uh, along my journey. And one of those was with uh, the coach of the Socceroos at the time, and he's still very involved, Graham Arnold. And uh, Graham Arnold is one of the more astute coaches of sport that I've worked with. And uh, he, uh, he was pretty keen to get me involved with their program. And I ended up going to uh, Kuwait and Bahrain on uh, friendly type tours with the Socceroos. So that was back in the halcyon days of guys like um, Kuhl and Viduka and, and those guys. And, and I loved it. And the opportunity was there to get involved in soccer. And I was so tempted to go, but my young kids were just that. They were young kids. So for me to leave, it was too much of a... A burden, I think, on my young family. So we stayed put. Um, I also did a stint with cricket and I went to India for cricket for uh, several months, part of the Indian Cricket League. Uh, I hated cricket. Um, I hated playing it as a, as a young kid, but back in my uni days, uh, I was friends with a guy called Jock Tamble, who was also a mature age student. And uh, Jock, um, very well known in cricketing circles, he was a uh, perhaps one of the most successful conditioning coaches in the history of the game. And uh, he'd now moved to the an integral part of the Indian Cricket League. So he convinced me that I would uh, uh, learn to love cricket. And uh, I was dubious, but uh, the promises of riches and everything were, were pretty good. And I decided I'd go off and do it. And uh, I got so much out of that tour. I learned a lot about myself and a lot about people, and a lot about the culture of India, which I had no idea about. And I've been back there since and absolutely love it. And the interesting part of that is I'm still in contact, even as recently as yesterday, with members of that uh, cricket team. And that's back in oh, 2009. Mm. Um, and then out of the blue, I've got a call from the AFL about setting up a club in Sydney. They wanted to set up the Greater Western Sydney Giants. So for me to take AFL to Sydney, and it was almost like going full circle. You might recall at the very beginning of this, I told you that I work for Little Athletics, but we were based in Western Sydney. I'm from Yass, which is in the catchment. I went to school in Canberra, which is part of the Giants footprint. I travelled all over the whole area that was Greater Western Sydney Giants. 
And to be honest, I knew the area of the Giants probably better than anybody else involved in that club. And uh, Andrew Dimitri knew that because I talked to him on a couple of the international rules teams that I've been on. And uh, I didn't even know that they were considering a team in Western Sydney in those days. But, uh, yeah, so I thought that was a great challenge. And coming from a club like Essendon, which has been uh, one of the preeminent clubs in the competition, and it's steeped in tradition and history, I didn't know anything about AFL, let alone Essendon Football Club. And I used to educate myself uh, during breaks. I'd go into the, they have a Hall of Fame, like a museum, and I'd educate myself about the, the players. And players of years gone by, like Reynolds and Coleman, they became as present in that time to me as did Heard and Lloyd. They were just players of the club. And I got to know the history of the club to the point where it's almost ironic. At the end, sometimes I'd take groups on tours and talk about the history of AFL and how it came and came about. And, uh, yeah, I grew to love the whole game. So going to set up a club in Sydney, I'm very cognizant of the fact that if you want to have a, a not just a strong organisation but a le- leading organisation that will be there in 100 years from now where my grandchildren or great-grandchildren or whatever are going to look back and say, yeah, my relative had, he was involved in setting up that club. What, what chance in history are you ever going to get to be part of something like that? Mm. And uh, I took the job on uh, with eyes to the future that I'll never see. And uh, I think the Giants are well on their way. But, well, I had a, a few interruptions at the Giants when I was there. And uh, so I ended up having to leave there. And uh, then they created a job for me when I came back. So I was sick for a little while. So uh, I came back in and uh, I did that for another few years. And then I'm out of there. And now I'm sort of a free agent doing my my thing and uh, and loving it. Yeah, sort of uh, bouncing around. Who knows what's coming next? It's, mate, I feel like I'm talking to the Jimmy Barnes of strength conditioning here. Like, you've been. Because he's an old fart that should have retired. <laughs> no, absolute legend in the game. Like, um, I've, I've got so many, so many questions. I just, I don't, I don't really know where to start in a way, but um, I'll, I'll start with what you, what you were doing with, with GWS because you, you, you mentioned it as well, how you're starting something that should last a century. You know, it should go from like you're starting out a whole, uh, new team which is huge uh, what was what was your kind of like initial feelings coming into that thinking like okay there's obviously these clubs that have such huge history how do I how do I start how do I how do I make my own team first off and then how do I then create a culture within that there were two parts to it one was uh, you were going to be bringing in some of the most talented young men in the country and understand when they first came the facilities were not good. In fact, they were crap. And uh, we were out in the back blocks of uh, Blacktown and uh, the football ground that we were training on was actually a baseball diamond. And we were training on that and we were in demountable buildings. And you're getting these athletes or players that you knew were, were going to evolve to become some of the better athletes in the competition. And they're spread throughout the competition now. And we always knew that would happen as well, that they would eventually be, you know, we'd break them down into different clubs. But you're talking to them about uh, the values that make up elite sport. So I was talking to these young young men about the need to uh, set goals and targets for themselves, about professionalism required, about the need for discipline, 
the need to be authentic and drilling those things into these 16, 17-year-old boys, you know. And uh, we'd have meal times or lecture times. We'd have to go down to Rudy Hill RSL and uh, who were down there, which uh, was just down the road. And they became great supporters of the club in a, in a sponsorship means. And uh, we were able to use their facilities, which were fantastic. So there was this one day and a couple of the boys had done something that I didn't think was very good at all. And I was giving it to them. And I was the whole group were there. There were about 50 of them. And I'm talking to them about the need for professionalism and the need to be at all times. This is a professional football club. And you are representing as part of this professional football club. Then over the speaker came. Table 50, you are the winner of today's hamper. You've won. <laughs> well, we just lost it, you know. So it was a really strange environment. And I'm sure those young blokes, so they're so resilient um, in many respects because of where uh, they came from, where they learnt to become professional in the most surreal of environments. That uh, I think when people look back at the, the Giants in 50 years from now, at their very, very humble beginnings. Um, it's, a, it's a great story. Mm, for sure. And starting out this new system, um, tell me how, how assumptions played a part of that. So for a lot of Strong assumptions for me in that every year, say when I was at uh, Essendon, you know, you'd get maybe four, five young players come in. So you build your assumptions around there. When I left Essendon and I had my own business going, I was consulting to a number of these players and one of them in particular, um, he, um, he found me. His name is Dylan Shield, and uh, I think Dylan Shield is one of the most outstanding young players in the competition. And so he came to me when he was 16 and he wanted to develop himself to the highest level that he could be, not knowing at that time that we would both end up at uh, uh, GWS, mm. but he probably shook my assumptions a little bit in that uh, he was quite a well-developed young bloke, even when he was 16. But my underlying assumption for the playing group was physically they are going to be so underdeveloped that it will be um, a, a major job just to get their posture correct and, and to be able to teach them basic things like lifting technique, to be able to teach them how to run properly. I had no illusions that they would not have been taught how to run correctly and how to accelerate properly and how to do things like um, uh, recovery and nutrition. And then you've got to bring into that the very, well, it wasn't even an assumption, it was a reality that these boys were 100% leaving home, probably for the first time unless they've been to boarding school, but they're leaving home and going into a part of Sydney that didn't even really know how to spell AFL, let alone be thrilled that they've got a club in their backyard. And they're just, suddenly we've put them into this surreal environment and we're trying to develop them and build them. And they're some of the best, most talented players in the competition that would also be aware that the guys that maybe weren't quite as good as them were being drafted off to Essendon, to West Coast Eagles, to Adelaide Crows, and they'd be sharing stories about, oh, we do this and we do that. We're having meetings in a boardroom next to the bingo hall at Rudy Hill. We're training on a uh, baseball diamond and uh, they're in accommodation at a 
has set up down the road all like a big boarding school. I tell you what, it was a very challenging time and you had to stick by what it was. And I think the group of people that were put in place at GWS, it was it was headed at the time by Dale Holmes, uh, who was the first uh, general manager there, if you like. Um, but the inspired choices that were involved there, I think having Kevin Sheedy as the coach was a masterstroke because Cheeds had already been there and done that. He's one of the most successful coaches in the sport of AFL. So he wasn't there for the accolade or the success. He was there to lay that foundation. Then support that appointment um, with, he had support staff like Mark Williams, who'd been premiership coach from Port Adelaide and had knew Sheeds very well. So for him to come in from that technical um, underpin there, and then as time goes on, you get people in there like, Gubby Allen. Gubby Allen's one of the best uh, people I've ever worked with in sport. And I don't say that lightly in terms of his ability to see the big picture and understand the individuals within it. And there was a lot of work done in around player welfare. And, you know, I'm talking over several years, this emerged and evolved. But um, bringing in um, uh, Craig Lambert, who'd been at Brisbane with Gubby, uh, who looked after player welfare, but also had a bit of a coaching role. I think it was a very tight knit group. And that group lay that solid foundation, it's bedrock, and that's what the Giants have been built from. And, of course, as time went on, uh, we developed facilities at Olympic Park as well. So now the Giants have amongst the best facilities in the AFL. We've got a fabulous facility at uh, Olympic Park. We have our main, or their, sorry, I'll still talk about our, that uh, they have their uh, competition venue uh, in Spotless Stadium at uh, Olympic Park. But then out of Blacktown, there's a facility out there. So the planning was so detailed in terms of the ground. One ground is the size of the MCG, same dimensions. The other ground is the same size as Etihad Stadium. So we could do training drills relevant to the grounds that we would most commonly train at. Yeah. Uh, we've got facilities out of Blacktown, which are fabulous. And now the academy, they spend most of their time training out there. And then at Olympic Park, the state-of-the-art training and uh, um, administrative facilities as well. And it's not finished yet. They've still got ways to go in terms of the development of that side. Mm, yeah, for sure. And, and did, correct me if I'm wrong, you ended your time as, with the academy, is that correct? You had yeah, well, I was going along great guns. Um, and we got to um, around about 2014 and I... Uh, developed an autoimmune disease, and uh, it's very rare. Um, the the autoimmune I had, it's um, it's called limbic encephalitis, and encephalitis relates to the lining of your brain, and it was literally my brain was on fire, and it uh, was causing me to have seizures, and I'd had multiple seizures, but though I was left with lesions on or scars on my brain, and those scars usually become inoperable brain tumours. So the prognosis isn't very good. Under a scan, uh, you could see quite clearly that I had seven lesions on my brain. So there were seven areas that were likely to turn into inoperable brain tumours. Um, they affected my personality. They affected my emotion. They affected my sense of smell and my sense of taste, um, all manner of things. Um, but whether it's by the grace of God um, I didn't develop any brain tumours. In fact, they can't explain why, but uh, several of those lesions on scan have actually resolved. And uh, I spent the best part of 12 months 
under um, pretty intensive care in Canberra. Uh, the uh, neurosurgeon is down there. And uh, when I came back to Sydney, I needed to get back to my kids. I needed to get back. Uh, they were at this stage um, young adults in, in high school. And uh, this was, I believe my encephalitis was brought on by stress away from sport, nothing to do with sport. I believe it came from a marriage breakdown that I never saw happening. And uh, couldn't, couldn't have even dreamt that it would happen. And sometimes I even have to really pinch myself to think, has this really happened? But uh, uh, it was stress-related and my inability to cope with that stress and uh, try to manage that along with everything else. But it was very important for me that I get back to my kids to give them what I believe is a stable and normal life. And uh, so I came back to Sydney and in some ways I probably came back a bit early. I I don't really remember coming back to Sydney. Whilst I wasn't sick for seven years, I've lost seven years of memory. So the best way I could explain that to you or give you some sense of feeling is that imagine you go to bed tonight and when you wake up tomorrow, you're in a different room. Um, the furniture looks the same, but you're in a different room. The door's in a different place and the walls are a different colour and you can hear a voice you know. In my case, it was my son. And I got up to go and talk to him and uh, uh, he wasn't 13, he was 20. And even now, for me, that's, uh, that was one of the um, most challenging days of my life. Mm. Um, it was like I'd been asleep for seven years. I wasn't, but I'd been there, but I've lost those seven years. And sometimes it comes back to me. I'll get a flash like a, in a movie, like a, a dream sequence of something that's happened. And I've got an extraordinary intuitive sense of gut feel of situations or people. Uh, and I really follow my gut feel now because it's been proven to be 100% correct. I don't remember what's happened, but, um, yeah, I'm not contacting some people for a reason. Mm. I just follow my gut feel. But yeah. um, that was a very challenging time. And so when I got back to the Giants, um, I, they said, well, just go and look after the academy. And it was really the AFL as much as the Giants. The AFL head office, it was their way of, I think, almost, well, they felt a bit sorry for them, but I think they felt a, a, a need to just support their own. The AFL are a fantastic organisation for getting underneath people within it. And uh, they got underneath me, definitely. And yeah. they just said that I could work in the academy, do whatever I liked. And so I took it quite seriously. And I started getting into the identification of um, of the uh, athletes that were there. Remember, a lot of them don't have any interest or inclin inclination to go and play AFL. Mm. When I was in hospital, they needed to test the acuity of the vision in my eye. I've lost um, a bit of vision in my right eye. So they test that a lot and they put these special glasses on and they could track the movement of my eye. It got me thinking that, there might be something in this. And sure enough, we ended up not convinced them to buy them. They're worth about $30,000 and they're special glasses that can track the movement of your eye and you can determine, amongst other things, decision-making capability. So I could go into a school and test a kid for 5, 10, 20 metres and say, yes, he's fast, slow or indifferent. I could do a yo-yo test and say he's got great endurance or he's not good at that. I could get him to do jump, whatever. But now... I could test, does this young boy or girl have 
decision-making capabilities for AFL. And mm. uh, then from that, we brought in two PhD students. So I supervised two PhD students and we um, uh, did studies on elite end from the and from the base end and brought it in so you could identify talent. So I've got all the visual movement skills of every all of the best players. So one of the best players in the competition is Toby Green. Well, we could see it even then. His, his ability for eye movement is like off the charts. He's my benchmark yeah. of visual acuity. Um, and we could see things like Indigenous players have better uh, visual depth and a greater, a greater um, range than uh, non-Indigenous. It was right there in front of us. So mm. it's an exciting area and one that I think will grow in as, um, as this uh, becomes more commonplace. But that's part of the future is identification through eye movement. Yeah, interesting. That's the one I was going to ask you. So how how did you um, get that baseline from it? And we just got it from like oh, yeah, the baseline. We got it from uh, from players. Yeah, from the players. And we remember the Giants had some of the best players anyway in the competition. They mm. mightn't be multiple premiership players, some of them, but they they are arguably the best identified kids in the competition of their ability to play. But we can now see with most of them that has to come through through their eye movement. Yeah, that's fascinating that you got that idea from your own experience. Um, and yeah, well, everything's got to be a learning learning experience. So I, the other thing that I, I got a lot of, uh, whilst I was at uh, Essendon also, I did a, a master's degree and I did that in science and technology, but uh, I really looked at hydration there and how that impacts on performance. So my master's thesis was on hydration and how it impacts on performance. Mm. When I was sick, um, they put me on 19 tablets a day and the specialist told me that I'd have to get used to taking these 19 tablets a day. I've never uh, really been one for um, lots of drugs. Um, oh. Yeah, it, and I, uh, I just couldn't see it. So anyway, I, I ended up, and I thought it would be worthwhile for my brain. Remember, I had issues with memory and, and so on. Mm. So I enrolled myself at Deakin University where they wouldn't know anything about my condition and stuff like that. I did a a postgrad in uh, nutrition and what I was looking for was what are the best anti-inflammatory foods that I could be prescribing for myself but in doing that I could then help others with their own nutritional choices um, I don't know if this is a measure of success I, I got through the degree that was one thing ticked off because I wasn't going to get uh, an exam marked oh the poor buggeries had that encephalitis thing just just put him through there was none of that I either knew it or I didn't I yeah. could either do the assignments and have the discipline to do that, or I didn't. So it was that, that was part of my rehab that I set for myself. Um, but the biggest thing is my 19 tablets, I'm now down to half a tablet a day. And I take Imurin, which is an immune suppressant, which uh, all the specialists are adamant that I'm going to have to keep going and taking, but I'm still looking for something that can replace Imurin naturally in my body as well. But for now, especially in this time of a pandemic, I make sure I take my Imurin every day. Hmm. I'm just curious as well, mate. How did you respond to the vaccine when you got it before you left? Did you? Uh, no. Yes. Yeah. Well, I had to have uh, uh, two shots. And uh, look, I I am worried about it. But for me, um, I've got less worries than anyone, or not anyone, than a lot of people in the community. In that I'm immuno vulnerable. That's what so. I'm for me, going into an Olympic village where the whole globe is coming in. God knows what's there. Um, yes, for me, I had no hesitation in getting the vaccine 
and well, I really sorry. let me um let me clarify like not politically reasoning in terms of actually physical response how oh um look I felt um uh, tired mm. and uh I slept a lot um I had a bit of a headache that first uh, that night actually um and then nothing and when I had the second one done um it was no, nothing at all mm. uh, I've had bigger um negative responses if you like to getting a flu vaccine so yeah. I've had a flu vaccine and I got a bit sick from having that, actually, one of them. Uh, but interestingly, you should say that because I was only talking to my daughter this morning and she's had her her back, her first one last week and she got quite ill from it, even to having a fever and, uh, um, yeah, the, the whole bit. Uh, but it was only a 24-hour response and then she's come out and fine. So and my son had How old your daughter? Uh, my daughter's now 22. See, I've, I've read up that I think... The young you are, the more it affects you um, in terms of the response straight after. But then the next day, you almost like bounce back, back to normal. Yeah. Um, no, that seems to be the case. I mean, that, look, there's definitely cases where people are going to have um, adverse reactions. To it. It's not in their head, you know. Uh, exactly. Uh, so for example, the blood clotting um, indications are coming from AstraZeneca. Mm. But they are the minority. If you look at the actual overall numbers, they're in the minority. And Correct. I'd... Um, I'll take my chances. This is my own thinking. I'm not talking to anyone else here. Mm. I've been to hell and back with limbic encephalitis. I'll take my chances with a vaccine that may develop a blood clot and monitor myself and have that treated accordingly as opposed to getting COVID-19. If I get COVID-19, I won't be doing too many more podcasts with you, I don't believe. And I'm sorry to cut you short before about, you know, getting into political because we could have a whole other podcast about whether we need to get the vaccine or not. Um, I'll be here for days. But um, I wanted, and again, you can answer this as, as much or as truthfully as you want, but going back to when you were sick, um, you you mentioned that it was, you believe it was stress-related and not work-related um, yeah. because, of, because of an event that happened in your life. Uh, and then you don't, and you didn't react properly to that. Or you didn't handle it the way that you wished you had it. Um, going back taking yourself back in time um what was stopping you from reacting properly to or 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 kind of dealing with it properly the stress that you were under well i'd start by saying to you that i've never worked a day in my life um so it can't be work-related stress i've never worked i've just uh, been doing the things that i love doing Mm. um but my whole I think my whole ethos, my whole purpose of being mm. is, is around things like loyalty, honesty, trust. And when you're married to someone for, you know, 15 years and then you find out that not only have they decided that and they never communicated before that they're not any longer happy in the relationship, they're moving on with someone else and you had no idea, yet it had been going on for a, a while. And I have no issues at all with the, um, the gay and lesbian communities within Australia. I think people should express who you are. But when your wife of 15 years decides that she's going to go into a same-sex relationship, I found that very hard to deal with and I found it very hard to communicate to other people that this is going on. I, I found it very hard to accept it and very hard to forgive the person that I'd loved for many years for that type of behaviour, which undermined everything that I stood for 
and understood everything that the family was about. Um, it was something that I could never have prepared for, I don't believe. And it was all just a matter of that was how my body coped with it. You've, you've just got to look at the word disease, dis-ease, mm. not eased, not at rest, not relaxed. I, I came very diseased by, I believe, the actions and the betrayal of another person, and I didn't cope well with it. It's amazing that people deal with these kind of things differently um, based on their core values. So, for example, you had such strong values, your trust, loyalty that you had in tied with your family. Um, and then you go through an event like this and then it impacts you so deeply that it has all these effects on you. Whereas other people who haven't got those core values, these events might happen to them and they just move on and go to the next thing. Um, well, it brings into light you know, what do you really believe in and what is it that you stand for? Mm. And I think that post-relationship uh, bust-up, uh, post-life-threatening um, uh, disease, post-collapse of a career, I was at more than a crossroads. You know, I can fall in a heap and say, well, this is where I'm at and just that's it, or mm. get up and say, what do I learn from that? And how can I be better because of that? And what do I need to do to, to move on from that? Everybody has challenges in their life. Um, and if they haven't, get ready because it's coming. And it's all about being prepared. And it comes back to who you are as a person and how you're going to deal with that as a person. And that's what that's what happened to me. And you, you find out who you are. You find out your mettle when you get there. When I first started in a key role and I was 26 and thought I knew everything, far out, I'd like to go back and give him a clip around the head. Um, you know, um, no, you, you learn it with the, with the time. You learn it with time. And that's the, one of the great tragedies of Australian sport. I think that when a person reaches a certain age, uh, that a lot of people regard, oh, they're past it. They're past it. Nothing can be further from the truth. The Coaches in AFL, for example, that have been been in there. I'm talking, you know, well, Kevin Sheedy had another go with the Giants, but I'm talking about, the, and I don't know them. I don't know. I've met, met Mick Malthouse, but I don't know him. Um, um, Dennis Pagan. Are these the, are the voices of coaches from the past, where are they? They should be still involved with the sport in a mentoring-type role, talking to the coaches of the present and bringing them through. And all these conditioning coaches out there trying to reinvent the wheel, yet you've got guys that are super skilled and talented from uh, Bill Daverin to Joel Hocking, you know, they're, they're scattered through every, every club mm. but are not there anymore. They're a resource that's untapped within the industry and yet we have this thing about, oh, well, they're this age now, oh, they've had their time, let's move on. That's one of the great failings, not just of the AFL, but of all sport. It's, uh, I think we should be opening the door to uh, voices of the past because you can learn from them. Mm. But it's the, ignorance, it's the ignorance of youth, and I call it hubs. It's the ignorance of youth that um, they, they're not listening to them. Hubs stands for head-up-bum syndrome. They're so full of their own importance, they're not listening to voices of reason outside. You've got to get that on a T-shirt or something. I like that. <laughs> to move on from things like that, it is easy just to accept it and move on. But when you're in this situation, you're dealing with, you're dealing with your illness, you're dealing with your bad day, you've had a lot of bad days, which I can assume from, 
how do you how do you kind of just go about your practice while living those days i was fortunate in that uh with those roles that i'd had with um uh well Essendon to mainly mm. that i'd run uh leadership programs for the bombers and we'd gone off on you know all these things from survival camps to whatever but probably one of the most significant things we did as a group um, back in about 2004 was I took them to Japan and I'd been to Japan a few times and I wanted to talk about the culture of the club and what was the club about and I wanted to go to Japan not because I think that Japanese culture is the standout just that the Japanese culture is one where it's very defined and the whole country gets their culture mm. and they live by that culture and that standard of ethos you can go to japan and everything's predictable based on that culture uh it can it's an incredibly safe place to go to because that's the essence of their being in that country so i took essendon there and we looked at um lifestyle communication all all manner of things that's another podcast but that was a great experience for all of us, but myself included. I did a subsequent one there as well. So when I was sick and at my lowest low and thinking, what, have I, what am I going to do? I knew I had to draw a line in the sand. I talked to the specialist doctor. I said, how's it going to be if I travel? And he said, oh, you know, look, you probably shouldn't travel too much. So, you know, a bit unpredictable with the flights. And... Uh, he said, where did you want to go to? I said, oh, Japan. And he said, oh, I don't think that's a very good idea. And I said, why? And he said, well, what if you get lost? So, well, how could you get lost if you don't know where you are in the first place? And he said, well, I can't argue with logic like that. He said, when are you planning to go? And I said, well, I'm glad you've agreed because I'm leaving tomorrow. And the next day I flew uh, to Tokyo, got on a Shinkansen or bullet train into the mountains of Nagano where they held the 1998 Olympics. I took myself up onto the highest peak and I sat up on top of that mountain and just looked at what my life had become and where I wanted it to go. I was very emotional, crying up there about the situation that I was in, but I set some standards and goals. And one of those goals was I want to come back here in a coaching role, the Tokyo Olympic Games. That's where I'm going to start. I came down off that mountaintop, very clear direction of where I was going to go. Well, the last two weeks I've been in Tokyo for the 2020 Olympic Games. That was a big tick. The Olympic Games weren't just a sporting event for me. Mm -hmm. That was a life achievement for me to go back there and do that. And I've been able to tick off another couple of things along the way. And I've got a few things more that I intend to go. And you can talk all you like, but you ultimately have to take responsibility for who you are, where you want to go, and where you're going to go to get what you need and how you're going to develop yourself. And my moment just came where I had to take responsibility for me and the buck stopped with me. And, uh, yeah, move, moving forward as a result of a shit time in my life brought it about. I never forget um, a quote that I read. And it was, you must first stand in the darkness before you can see the light. Well, I was in the pitch black and the light became very obvious. So I just walked towards the light. And uh, here I am now talking to you. Yeah, perfect. Perfect.
where would you feel you've been most vulnerable as a person, not just as a practitioner, but as a, as a person? Oh, definitely for me, the most vulnerable I've ever been as a person was when I sat up on that mountain in Japan and really looked at who I was. And look, you can talk about any manner of uh, things that happen in your life and you can point the finger of blame at people or situations that got you there. But when you're pointing that one finger, you've usually got three coming back at you. Mm. So I had to look at those three fingers pointing at me and saying, well, where do I have to improve here? What, have I, what am I going to learn from this? So, yeah, the most vulnerable I've ever been is up on that mountain because it was a, a whole lifetime of reflection coming back. Uh, now I just do that on a regular basis. I just have a look at um, every, every month or every couple of months and how could I have done that better? How could I have handled that situation better than what I did? Mm. And if you don't mind me asking, you said as well the... Uh, you, you had the goal of achieving Tokyo and you went and achieved it, but you've got ones going forward. What, what are some ones going forward? What have you, what have you, oh, what are the others? When one of the things about the lesions on my brain, it affected uh, what's called your olfactory. So that's my smell and therefore my taste. And I could only taste several food items. They were vanilla ice cream, white chocolate, Coca Cola. And so I was eating heaps of them. When I was in hospital, I thought I was on a cruise ship and I thought the nurses were waitresses on the cruise ship. So I used to get the waitresses to bring me Coke, vanilla, ice cream and white chocolate. And that combined with the drugs, which were anti-inflammatory drugs, steroids, to stop the inflammation of my brain, I put on about 25 kilos. So when I was up on top of that mountain in Japan, I was like Jabba the Hutt up there. I was big. And so one of my things was I'm going to get myself fit hmm. well i'm an exercise physiologist and i've been a, a high performance coach in fitness so yeah i had to get myself into shape so one of my goals was that and get back into coaching but um one of the things I, I wanted to do um give myself an area where i could be coaching people and working with people and so i've developed my squad in and around that and i probably come from a strange angle with coaching i I really believe that you coach people and then the athletic ability comes after that. Mm. So I've got a very eclectic group of athletes around me, uh, some very, very talented athletes from an Olympic level down to I love doing the sport level. Mm. But it still comes back to coach the person first and out of that becomes their potential. Yeah. So that helped me as, as my own person that 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 helped me to recover by helping other people help me. Mm. Um, you, you touched on as well about how even just in quarantine you've um you've been sleeping so well, and mm-hmm. first time you've done that for a long time. And it's not a it's not an unusual fact that people within your practice, you know, prioritize early mornings, late night sessions, extra work after hours, whatever it might be, and you sacrifice sleep for that. But for now, how 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 important do you believe that that sleep is? for your own kind of mental health? Well, part of the thing for me is sleep has been a challenge. Um, and ever since I've uh, been sick, um, I haven't slept very well at all. Mm. And sometimes I might only sleep four hours a night and that's it. Um, and so I'll just get up and work. So um, there'd be a lot of uh, patients or colleagues that I have 
I know they've got the surprise and they've received emails from me and it's like 3.30 in the morning or 4 o'clock in the morning. That's That was uh, has been my mode of operation. Mm. And uh, I've, I've worked in and around that, but I've known that I've had to do something about the, the sleep aspect. And uh, who knows, one of the things that's come out of this quarantine is that I'm going to bed and uh, not waking up until six or seven in the morning. It's a, uh, yeah, and uh, I'm actually feeling much better for it, but I've known that. I know that I need to have more sleep, but I don't want to get more sleep by taking um, some sort of um, chemical or drug to help me go to sleep. So I've looked at relaxation, I've looked at meditation, I've looked at exercise, I've looked at what I eat, I've looked at the blue screens, all of those things. But, you know, 3.30, 4 o'clock, bang, my eyes are open and I'm ready to go. So not here. So I'll uh, hopefully be able to take this back into the real world when I get out next week. Yeah, fantastic. What about your own training then? You said you ordered a bike into your own room, which is a great mm-hmm. idea that came so quickly. Oh. But how, how essential is your own training for just operation for yourself? Oh, look, I think uh, you, you've got to look after yourself and fitness. And it's an area I think uh, I was got very good at. And probably over the last... Um, uh four or five months it's dropped away a little bit Mm. and i think that you can make all manner of excuses for why that is it's not an excuse you make choices and you prioritize other people over you so i work in a number of different roles now from uh, i work in a university setting or i work at a um um in a school in a mentoring role i work in a clinical setting and they've got early starts late finishes i've got a squad of athletes that i'm seeing four or five times Mm. suddenly those roles start taking your choosing to put them ahead of yourself. Yeah, some of the exercise that I should be getting, I haven't got. And so that's something I've really been able to reflect on over here as well to sort of need to get that sort of back on back online again. Yeah, And uh, I think if you want to talk the talk about health, fitness, lifestyle choices, you've got to walk the walk. You can't, otherwise you're just a fraud. Yeah. And yeah, so no, definitely. Definitely, uh, you've got to be doing the work. And the uh, the bike in my room is a part of that. So I've been on that bike, you know, at least every day. There's oh, there's one day where I dropped off it. I mean, it's quite, it's not the best of bikes. But uh, I've been doing that. I've been doing a bit of skipping and I've been doing a bit of a circuit that I made up for myself. So mm-hmm. that's all right. But I'm looking forward to getting out of here and having a bit of space to do something properly. In. I've got a question about the bike. When you leave quarantine, what's going to happen to that bike? Oh, it gets, uh, I've got to put a, a bag on it and then they come and pick it. They come and collect it. Yeah. Uh, yeah they'll probably burn it. Is that what you're thinking? <laughs> yeah. Something like an incinerator or something. Yes. Yeah. They, they delivered it with a big plastic bag for when it's finished. I just put it in the bag and put the sign on it and put it out the front and they come and pick it up, I guess. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. What are your non-negotiables? Not in, in, in work, just in life what are your non-negotiables i look for loyalty i look for honesty and i look for consistency and uh through those you get excellence yeah i love that good and another one i want to ask you especially earlier on in your career not so much later on um have you ever had a skill um that you've ever oversold to people in the past on purpose? Oh, yeah yes yeah, that's a good question uh, I think when you think you've got all the answers and I think uh, when you come out of uni and you're in a job, not only do you think you know all the answers, you think that you have to know all the answers. And 
I, I can still recall the first day I had at Essen Football Club and James Hurd was the first player to come in and I didn't really know who he even was. And he said to me, do you know anything about navicular stress fractures? And I said, yes. I thought, thank God, you know, because a navicular is a small bone in your foot and it's a running injury. And I knew a lot about them. And he said, oh, I've got this, uh, I've had a navicular and da, da, da. And I said, oh, mate, just do what I tell you to do. You'll be fine. And he did exactly what I told him to do. And we got to that game, the first game in 99, and he's sitting on the bench. And if you look at the old footage, he's in tears and I don't know what to do because he's fractured that bone in his foot again. And part of the reason he fractured the bone in his foot was because of my ignorance and just ego probably saying, oh, yeah, I can fix that, mate. Yeah, come on, I know all that. Mm. Well, I didn't even understand enough about the real pathology and the history of what went in with that foot. And James heard, well, I'm biased, but I think he's arguably one of the greatest footballers in the history of AFL. 100%. I was only responsible for ending his career through that ego. Mm. That's, that's a lesson I learned early on. I've never done that since. Fortunately, yeah. fortunately, uh, because of my history in athletics and travelling around the world, I'd come across a special type of treatment when I was in Germany and we were able to get that and we were able to implement that with a very skilled surgeon and a guy called Julian Feller in Melbourne. And uh, they were able to treat Herdy and then with a, a proper rehab, we got him back. He never had a sore foot from that day forward. But, uh, yes, I think that would be one of the biggest lessons I've ever had in sport. Um, I've got another big question for you. It's probably the biggest question of the day. Uh, what is your best dad joke? Oh, God. <laughs> uh, I, don't, I don't have a list of things where I'd be thinking about dad jokes, to be quite honest, but uh, I actually had a patient the other day and uh, I, didn't, well, I don't know if you classify this as a dad joke, but um, he'd been, he, he just couldn't shake the weight. He was trying to drop weight and he reckoned he couldn't. And then finally he started doing exactly what I asked him to do in the program and it, it uh, dropped off. And I said to him, you know, all this time, I thought it was the dryer that was shrinking your clothes. And who would have thought all along it was the bloody refrigerator? <laughs> boom, boom. There's my dad joke. <laughs> that's good. I like that. <laughs> that's very different from what I've heard, so that's good. Different perspective oh, dad jokes. Mate, I usually um, come from left field. <laughs> <laughs> no, good on you, mate. Good on you. Now, throughout our whole chat, today man you've given a lot of advice which has been awesome so i'm not going to ask you again about any advice you give out for, for students i think because if they listen to this whole episode they've got a whole life they've got a whole like a uh, life a lot of experience from yourself what you've gone through um but what what's next for you mate going out of quarantine and if people want to get in touch with you what's the best way to do that well, best way to get in touch with me is to literally pick up the phone or they can come through my website. So if they look at Quinn Elite Sports, they'll find me uh, online and all my contact details are there. Um, I'm not uh, into secrets or um, high levels or anything like that. So if they, people think that I can help them, I'd love to uh, catch up with them. What's next for me? Well, I'm looking forward to getting back to my squad. I've got a high-performance track squad and... Uh, Next year's a very big year on the track. Um, we've got uh, well, Commonwealth Games, World Championships, World Indoor Championships, World University Games. So I don't think I can recall a time ever having so many choices in track. Mm. So that's that's going to be a very big year. But I'm looking forward to getting back to my squad, looking forward to getting back into the clinic and uh, 
uh, I've got, um, uh, I believe that I'll be launching my own practice in conjunction with a physiotherapist soon. And that'll be a, a, for exercise physiology where we'll treat people in a holistic type of way to not only rehabilitate from injuries, but prevent them from coming, but we'll also offer services around recovery and also uh, speed and power. Um, so I'm looking forward to getting back into that. And I enjoy my work at the University of Technology. So hopefully um, I can get back to UTS when COVID's all done and uh, uh, start interacting again there. And uh, I've got a role at the Scots College mentoring students there, which is one of my favourite jobs. And uh, so I get back into that and look, just get back into uh, living. As I said to you at the beginning, I, I've never really worked. None of those are jobs. They're just what I do. And mm. so, you know, I'm looking forward to getting back into life again post this COVID blitz. Mm. Mate, John, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you. I really, really enjoyed that whole hour and a bit of of talking to you. Um, I've learned a lot. I'm sure a lot of the guys that are going to listen to this will get a lot out of this. So I'm excited to hear the feedback from people listening to this. But, mate, uh, it's been a ride, but that's all we've got time for. I really all do right. appreciate it. And nice to talk to you, mate. All the very best. Bye now. So a huge thank you to John for jumping on the podcast and having a chat. I really appreciate all the experiences that you've gone through, mate, uh, within the industry and as well as your uh, your time and your candid responses in our chat. So it's obvious to see how someone within John's uh, position can still battle through their own personal and uh, health battles. And it was really interesting to see how John overcame all of that and still performed at his best uh, and at his peak throughout the industry. Uh, it's awesome to see how he then set his own goals, his own health goal, his own personal, uh, professional goals while being vulnerable on that on that um, mountain in in Japan and how he's achieved that by now just recently being to the uh, Tokyo Olympic Games. So uh, massive hats off to John, uh, a very influential figure in the industry and I'm sure a lot of people will get a lot out of listening to your advice. So again, if anything today has hit tr- or triggered anything within you and your own mental health, please reach out to myself or reach out to John. Uh, his contact details are below, plus his website's easy to find. Thank you again to Stance uh, for their permission to use uh, their track for this uh, for the podcast. But apart from that, that's all we have time for today. So thank you very much for that, guys, and I'll speak to you all next week.